I stay worried that people are going to forget all of our contributions in our lives. It bothers me. Mm. I stay worried that I could live my whole life and not really be understood for who I am. I think it's a fear that a lot of people have. Yeah, me too. And I just wanted to say what I actually felt. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture we rarely discuss in mixed company. Today, Brittany chatted with the legendary music journalist, magazine editor, novelist, and the host of the Black Girl Songbook podcast, Danielle Smith. She's most known for her work at Vibe magazine, where she made history as the first Black woman to become editor at the publication. But today, we have Danielle on to talk about her latest book, Shine Bright which is a love letter to Black female pop stars and their legacies. You'll hear me say this in the interview, but I have to say it again. This book was church. It's both a corrective history of pop music and a personal memoir about Danielle's life, upbringing, and the music that inspired her along the way. Not to mention, there are some really juicy quotes from these pop divas that challenge what we've been told about them, their work, and their relationships. Danielle encourages us to see these women, not just perceive them. That said, there are so many incredible moments in this book that I can't wait for y'all to hear about. Stay tuned. We're going to get to all that right after this break. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Danielle Smith, welcome to the show. So happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Total pleasure. I mean, I said this to our producer, Alexis. This book was church. Reading this book was church. And I am so excited for people to get to experience it. For people who don't know, I first interviewed you and your husband, Elliot Wilson, on a podcast I used to host six, seven years ago called Sampler. And it was about you guys, this podcast that you had together, Relationship Goals. And I remember when I was talking to you at that time, Mm -hmm. you said that you were working on this book. And now here it is. (laughs) You're rolling your eyes. I'm rolling my eyes at myself. I'm rolling my eyes, being irritated with myself. But yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but that but I mean look the book had the book got here in in the way that it was intended because reading it is it's such a beautiful journey and I appreciate all the time and and thought and research that went into this but all that work went into making something that I think is going to be used going forward as like a foundational text of black women's contributions to American music but so many people are familiar with you as one of the most important editorial voices in hip hop I wonder, like, why did you want to make Black women pop stars, pop artists, the focus of this book? I think it's tough to be a Black pop star from the beginning to now. Hmm. I think it's looked upon as being easy. 
I think people think that black pop stars are not human. Because I was editor-in-chief of Vibe and editor-in-chief and editor of Billboard, you know, I was always in the position of, with a team, of course, choosing covers. Mm-hmm. And that led me to be, to me, smart about the ways of pop because we had to sell issues to stay alive in the marketplace. Right. At Vibe. And I was blessed with the opportunity to interview a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've interviewed Janet Jackson three or four times, a long interview with Whitney Houston that I treasure and that I talk about in Shine Bright. Oh, yeah. And so I just bring some type of humanity to these people because I feel like their stories get rushed through, man. So I just really, I don't know. I'm just really devoted to this kind of detail. I just, it, it's, I'm obsessed by it now. I'm completely obsessed. And I appreciate all the time and, and thought and research that went into this, but I actually want to talk a bit about that obsession and attention to detail. You go deep into the archives in Shine Bright. I mean, at one point in the chapter about Gladys Knight, you talk about the wing of the hospital that Gladys Knight was born in and the phrase that Black people in Atlanta back at that time would use to refer to that hospital. I mean, that's deep research. Why was it important to get to that level of detail with this book? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm super nosy, so there's that part. (laughs) Um, That's the first part. Um, The second part is that I'm obsessive about the details of Black women's lives. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I want to know what kind of pomade that James Brown or Jerry Lee Lewis used on their hair, I could find that out. Probably on the first page of Google. Mm. But what kind of perfume did Diana Ross like to wear when she was a teenager? You gonna have to search for that. Mm. And I'm mad that that I can't that I can't find it or I don't know because Diana Ross herself might not remember or it just bothers me. So when things bother me, I have to go after it. I was very intentional in this book about paying attention to mothers. I'm very intentional about, we always talk about people are born on this day, but then we go on ahead and talk about their fathers Mm. before we talk about their mothers or the circumstances of their birth, because that's where it starts. You know, so when I was doing the research on Gladys and being born in what they called the Mm Grady's in Atlanta, was one to say that's where her mother was Hmm. in a segregated wing. And we know that things were separate, but not equal. I talk in the book about Marilyn McCoo. She came from a middle-class family. They were in the South. Her mother would take the train all the way up to the North to work with a Black gynecologist and obstetrician to have all her children because she didn't want to have a baby in a place like the Grady's. Mm. So it just I just want to know about the details of women's lives, and I just feel like they, it goes untold, and it has to do with people's genius and creativity and their foundation. And so I would just be on my research job. The book covers so many different women, from Marilyn McCoo to the Dixie Cups to Janet Jackson. How did you select which women you would write about in this book? That was absolutely the hardest part for me. One of the reasons that Black Girl Songbook came into being is because I felt like I had much more to say about Black women in music. Mm. But really the way the women were chosen is that they weren't really chosen so much 
as they are the women or the songs that meant the most to me over the course of my life. So it wasn't like I was going, well, we should do this one because of this. Mm -hmm. And then I should do this one because of that. It's like, no, I, I do the Dixie Cups because Chapel of Love, I used to hear my mother's car all the time. And I just love that record from when I was a little girl. It's like a nursery rhyme almost, that record. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm going to do, you know, Gladys Knight because in the book I state what my favorite song of all time is, and it is Midnight Train to Georgia. So, of course, I was going to write about that and why that came to be. I've always been mad that people don't pay attention to enough attention to Diana Ross's exemplary solo career. Mm. So I knew that I was going to um, try to write about that. So, And sometimes the way my brain works, well, if I'm writing about Diana, then that makes me think about this person, and that person makes me think about that person. And that reminds me that I was at a dance one time where that song was played, and everybody was acting <laughs> yeah. like this, and somehow that has to do with what's going on in the next decade or the decade after that. So then... You know, people just end up, just end up in the book. Exactly. You know, it feels like both reading the book and listening to the podcast, uh, to your podcast, Black Girl Songbook. It feels like we're getting like a mental map. And you know, I, like as you were just saying, like the book covers so many different women. Everybody from Gladys Knight to Jody Watley to Janet. But the book starts with Phyllis Wheatley, and you refer to her in the beginning of the book as both the precursor. And quote unquote, our first star, which to me was just such a provocative way to think about this woman who I only got to know, like reading her poetry in seventh grade English. Yep. And so to think about her as a star, this woman from the 1700s who was brought over, um, enslaved and taught to read and write and ended up making poetry that was quite celebrated in her time. It was, it just felt like such a provocative idea. Like explain why you framed Phyllis Wheatley as a star. I was blessed to go to a school where it was just very about stimulating the kids' imaginations. Mm -hmm. This is when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And I had a great teacher, Roberta Blatt. In the reading area, one, it was very multicultural. But there were always like pictures, you know, cutouts and stuff on the walls. And, you know, there would be like Cesar Chavez up there, you know. Connie Chung or somebody would be up there. Like it was always somebody like representing for the different races. And then one month or week or whatever it was, Phyllis. And I just could not believe. And, you know, I remember asking Mrs. Blatt so many times, like, I don't understand that she was a slave, but that she was writing the poems. Like, how did that yeah. work? And I was very fascinated by her and the way Mrs. Blatt had decorated it. You know, there were just like stars and, you know, everything that, that would appeal to a little girl's imagination. So I kind of fell in mm -hmm. love with Phyllis and over the course of my life, I've gone in and out of like reading her and obsessing about her and telling people about her. And, and then finally, I just realized when I finally realized how she left the United States of America and took a ship back across the Atlantic to London to perform her, her poems. And I think about all mm. of the artists, male and female, Black artists, who have gone to Europe to get their life, okay? Mm. Because they were just living in an America that was not appreciating them and was treating them in racist ways. And so I realized that that was a pattern that started with Phyllis. Mm. She couldn't really travel throughout, what was it? I mean, we were barely the 13 colonies at that time, I think. But she certainly right. couldn't travel through them freely, performing her art. 
But yet she's going to salons and stuff all over, you know, the UK doing that. And then she's from Boston and Donna Summer is from Boston. And right. And Donna Summer did the same thing. She went to Germany. But it's like I just began to think she's our girl. She's the model. She's the precursor. She jumped it off. And also because of the way she died by herself, you know, it makes me think of so many black women, period, and so many black women in music, so many black women in the arts lose their way, don't have a community, and end up in situations that we hate to know about. Um, So it just, Mm -hmm. I began to see all these parallels. And I was like, she's our girl. And she's going up with everybody. She's going up with Mariah. She's going up with Beyonce. She's going up with everybody. <laughs> no, I, th- I thought it was a beautiful dovetail, especially the way that you also had took the time to note how many of the Black women in pop that were in this book were also accomplished producers, also knew how to play instruments, also were incredible songwriters. You know, thinking about them as poets as well, you know, it really helped to start off with Phyllis in that way. You know, but when you talk about the way that her life ended and how that the end of her life was similar to so many other Black women in in music and who, as you put it, meet the circumstances in life that we don't want to hear about. That was something that kept coming back up throughout the book. But perhaps no other section of the book really hit me the way that part two did, which is the chapter that featured you writing about Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin and how they're connected. And it was about the legacy of each woman, but also about the abuse afflicted upon Black women who outshine their male partners. You know, you shared a story from your own life and and some of the circumstances that you've been through. And I'd never really seen that dynamic about Black women in music in the public eye put so clearly. It's also the longest chapter of the book. Um, Yeah. Talk to me about that chapter and, and why you devoted so much space to it. Well, I mean, Aretha and Whitney, man, they're just, they're towering figures in our culture. And then when you narrow down to black culture, I mean, they're central. And I really wanted to talk about the struggles that famous women have sometimes with their male partners. I knew from when I interviewed Whitney Houston and Whitney Houston said to me, when I was, at, when I was asking Whitney Houston about Bobby Brown mm. and, and Whitney was trying to be circumspect and this is like the mid-90s, too, when their relationship yes, was like everything was everything. there. Who knew? Yes. yes. And Whitney Houston said to me at a certain point, you're asking me about this. I'm paraphrasing. But it's like, you're asking mm-hmm. me about this. If you really are doing your work, you should speak to Lena Horne. And you should speak to Lena Horne and ask her about Joe Lewis. Mm-hmm. So I was like, like, I'm ever really just going to be kicking it with Lena Horne and rolling up on her, asking her about her relationship from when she was like 20. But lo and behold, I find myself interviewing Lena Horne. Mm. Might have been two years before she passed. Wow. She was so, to me, first of all, just very like about her business in a, in a, in a conference room with her family. So I'm like, how am I going to ask her this? She looked like the tiniest little lady. Sharp as a tag. So I walked it up, I walked up with it just slowly as I could. Whitney Houston told me to ask you about Joe Lewis. I said I was interviewing Whitney. Oh, I love Whitney. I love Whitney. Oh, Whitney. Whitney, I love Whitney. I love Whitney. So I said, let me just go on ahead. So I said, yes, I was interviewing her. And she suggested that I ask you, you know, we were just talking about relationships between black men and women. And she said that I should ask you about your relationship with Joe Lewis. 
She got super quiet, but not for too long. And she said what I have in Shine Bright, which is she wouldn't speak really about Joe Lewis. I think actually she was very gracious towards him because Mm -hmm. he was abusive towards her, to her. Mm -hmm. And she said there are just men out there who just look for women who have the light for the sole purpose of putting it out. And I was like, oh, so it's not just me and my boyfriend speaking of myself. So I knew I wanted to write about that. And so those chapters are super important to me um, because they give the book heft, I think, or more heft than it would otherwise have because, you know, there's joy in those chapters. There's celebration of musicality and imagination and creativity in those chapters. There's details about many women's lives in those chapters. But I didn't want people to think that these women were doing what they've done on some kind of yellow brick road. Mm. What you just said about like, oh, you know, you heard this from Lena Horne and you're like, oh, it's not just me and my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. That chapter, especially about, you know, how many of, you know, our greatest stars of all time, all time greatest stars. We're mm-hmm. talking about Aretha. We're talking about Lena Horne. We're talking about Whitney Houston. Tina Turner. The brightest, Put Tina in there Tina too. Turner. Mm-hmm. Some of the, the brightest stars that we've ever had. Yes. Black woman, American otherwise. Yeah. Um, And they, you know, I I appreciated that chapter because it was like you laid out them going through experiences that we all go through. I mean, Lord, hopefully not all of us, but but so many of us, if it's not you, it's your sister, your mother, your girlfriend, your cousin. Yes. Having the joy in there was so important, but it was also very, I didn't realize how much it was going to impact me getting to know these women as people the way that you presented them in the book. I'm so happy you said that because really I wanted to present them as people. That is like just what I wanted to do. I'm not acting like being a pop star doesn't mean that you're like a like a very special and talented and creative like person with an amazing work ethic and great teams and a whole bunch of luck too, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you're not human though. It doesn't mean that you're not human. It doesn't. And I also should clarify that the boyfriend that I was speaking of is not the person that I'm currently married to. (laughs) I've been married for 17 years to a wonderful guy. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, going back to the idea of you making these artists seem like real people, you know, you are also a character in the book. You know, you're sharing so much of your story. One of the things that really stuck with me from the book is how often you talk about Black women who create music. But those stories that you shared from all these different artists... And also from so many other artists who get mini bios in the book, book, like Ella Fitzgerald. Yes. Those stories are just as much about creating music as they are about how Black women create ourselves, how we create ourselves. And this book is really also about how you created yourself. Like, why did you want to share and braid together so much of your own story into this book? Okay, so let's get one truth out there right now. I definitely did not want to do that. No, Really? Oh, no, ma'am. No, that wasn't. The original um, concept was not that at all. It was to write like a history of black women in pop. Like encyclopedic. Like, okay, this chapter, this person, this chapter, this person. Yes, exactly. Encyclopedic is the word. That's exactly the word. And God bless uh, my editor, Chris Jackson at One World, who's a genius. He knows what to say and how to say it to so many writers who are blessed to work with him. And I'm not going to act like I don't tell the story often. I will tell it here. I was struggling to get finished with the book, Hmm. as I had been for a while. 
And Chris said, I think you should put yourself in the book. Now, mind you, he wasn't the first person to say that to me. So many people who would read it and say, well, you're not going to tell that story about that time with uh, Whitney and Bobby and Don King at the Riga. You're not going to tell that story. That was a good story. You're not going to tell that story about that time. You know, you went to wine country with Mariah Carey. You're not going to tell that story. Mm. And I would just be like, no, I don't think that's relevant. I just feel like I should (laughs) not. (laughs) He said, I bought a good book from you. He said, but you know, you have a great book in you, Daniel. He said, but you're going to have to tell your story. I mean, you shared so much detail, heart-wrenching at times detail, about you know what growing up was like for you with your sister and your mother and your stepfather and braiding that with the music um, that you love, these artists that you love. It was generous of you to share, I'll say first, so thank you. But also, it was so illustrative of what this music gets you through. It saved my life. You talk about last night, did DJ save my life? Please. I never want to act like I didn't have a lot of joy in my childhood, Mm -hmm. especially before I was 10. And my great-grandparents were still alive, and I wrote about them. I was so happy to write about them in this book. When they were alive, life was glorious, honestly. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, things change, and you find yourself basically going from the age of 10 to the age of 20 in like two years, because you Mm -hmm. have to. And when I say you, I mean me. And those of us that have been in situations where you've been physically abused or spiritually abused or mentally abused, you know the beats. But you also have to claim your own story or you don't heal. Mm. That is just facts, man. It's facts. That part was not easy to write at all. You know, they say you have to give people grace. You know, it was a different time and these types of things. Well, you know, I haven't wanted to give that person or that situation much grace at all. But it gave me some perspective. I won't say grace yet. We're all Mm -hmm. a work in progress. But it gave me some perspective on how hard it has been on Black people in this country, just generation after generation, and how it's just handed down and handed down and handed down. And I just didn't want it to go any further than me. I know my sister, when I, I don't have kids. My sister has two wonderful children, my niece and nephew. My sister was very intentional about the bug stops here. You know, mm. there'll be no more passing this along. We're going to tell the truth. And it's been good for me. I feel better probably in the last two years than I've felt in a good long time. There's a lot of overlap, too, in thinking about like the buck stops here and doing that healing and, and, and looking inward and being honest and open. You, you see it. So many Black women throughout the book reclaiming their joy. Or to go back to what we were talking about earlier, not dying in poverty. Yeah. You know, you mentioned even when when Donna Summer passes away, she had a loving husband and creative partner. Yes. And $75 million in the bank. One of the things that actually affected me the most of the book was seeing how I was noticing how I felt when I saw how some of these women ended up happy. Yes. Ended up healed. Ended up, you know, with the things that they wanted and feeling good and thriving. Yes. And those moments throughout the book where you shared like you're becoming, <laughs> like being with your sister, going to concerts, having nice boyfriends who yes. would take you to see Luther Vandross. Yes. Like, I think, you know, you know, being a journalist, interviewer, podcaster myself and looking mm-hmm. up to you and also, you know, you writing about how you looked up to so many of these women mm-hmm. who were both on stage and also behind the scenes because mm-hmm. you also filled that out as well. Yes. It was so wonderful to 
hear about your girlhood <laughs> and you just enjoying yourself and how all those moments of you finding yourself added up to a career and a life, just as with these women. I mean, I'm so happy to hear you say that, honestly, because that's what I say. Like, it was kind of awful for a good stretch of my childhood. But when you talk about like me going to shows and stuff, my mother took me <laughs> to my first concert when I was, I think, my eighth birthday. Mm -hmm. And then going to see the Jackson 5 again when I'm like a junior or senior in high school. Fabulous forum. I mean, it's just like, it's so much joy. Like, it was work for me to try to capture that joy in words because, ooh, it's so much easier to write about sadness, to be honest with you, to write mm. about tragedy. We have all the we have all the words and all the constructions and all of those things to do that. But just to really write about that intense joy of being at a show, 15,000 other people that know all the same words to the song mm. that you know. And everybody's sweaty and everybody's happy and you're getting to know the folks in your little area. And by the time you leave, it's like you've known those people for 10 years. And <laughs> it just, music is a blessing in my life. It is a blessing in my life. As much as words, and I love words, but music mm -hmm. is a blessing in my life. There's this one quote from the book. In the intro of the book, I want to read it to you because okay. I feel like it's in line with what we're talking about right now. Okay. And it also, um, I think, speaks a little bit to the podcast as well. It speaks a lot to the podcast as well. But, okay. but you say in the intro to this book, I weep because I want Black women who create music to be known and understood as I want to be known and understood. Tell me about what you meant when you wrote that. I stay worried that people are going to forget all of our contributions in our lives. It bothers me. Mm. I stay worried that I could live my whole life and not really be understood for who I am. I think it's a fear that a lot of people have. Yeah, me too. And I just wanted to say what I actually felt. I also knew this was going to be the first thing people were going to read, and I wanted them to know, as you just said, where we were going. And I just wanted people to know that they were about to go on a journey with me. We were going to get to know some people, some amazing, brilliant women, but that mm -hmm. also you're going to get to know me. And especially because these women inform my life so much. Every memory is attached to a record or a concert or a lyric. Mm. So yeah, I want, I do want these women to be known. It's their turn. And it's not like I'm not in great company. There's so many books coming out and so many books that recently have come out that are trying to correct the whack-ass historical manuscript that exists <laughs> with regard to who Black women are to pop culture in America. Shout out to Clover Hope, Dr. Daphne mm. Brooks. I could go on. Donnie Walton who's doing experimental fiction, like, come on. I think we're all feeling an urge to correct the record. Now that we've talked all about Shine Bright, after the break, we'll talk about another kind of book, Black Girl Songbook, Danielle's love letter of a podcast to Black women in music. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi. It's more popular than being French. See you in there. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Tito's handmade vodka had been mixed with its fair share of cocktails. But one night, a chilled glass topped with lime and cranberry would change everything this bottle knew about happy hour. From the producers of America's Favorite Vodka, it turns out the cocktail you've been waiting for was right there the whole time. The Tito's Rom Cosmo. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll sip with Tito's. Coming to cocktail parties near you at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The sentiment that, you, that we just discussed, um, wanting to be known and understood, wanting these women to be known and understood, some version of that is is repeated like in every single episode of your podcast on Spotify, Black Girl Songbook. And I will say, listening to Black Girl Songbook feels like an education and it feels like the writing of a record. But I want to know, what inspires you to start the podcast? One, I appreciate the kind thoughts about the podcast. Once I finished writing Shine Bright book, I just could not believe that I was supposed to be finished talking about Black women at this time. I was like, oh, no, this won't do. This won't do at all. I couldn't believe I finally filed the book. And then it was just like, so what am I supposed to do now? There's too many people that I didn't talk about in the book. I've done so much research now. I just feel reinvigorated with regard to how I can talk about these women. Mm. So maybe I should talk about these women. And as we do in this life, I put together a little deck and got myself together. (laughs) And here we are. Man, I love doing the show. I love doing the show. It's given me back. I'm a person that goes through um, crises of confidence, a depressive person. You know, I have those valleys in my life. Mm -hmm. And Songbook has really given me back a lot of confidence of me just putting one word after another by myself Mm. on the mic. I want to talk more about your delivery in the style of the show because it's so intimate. Like it's part audio essay, part confessional, and it also unlocks this memory of being in the car with my parents on on Saturday night, coming back from somebody's party at one of their friends' houses or something like that. Yes. And my sisters are asleep and my parents have on the Quiet Storm radio. But today really is about reintroducing ourselves to Aaliyah as a woman. Aaliyah, the human being. Like, how did she live? She was born in Brooklyn. 
She was raised in the Sherwood Forest area of Detroit. So what was that like, right? Well, it was upper middle class neighborhood. On the west side, I believe, of Detroit. I'm not a Detroit scholar. I come from Oakland. Everybody from Detroit, just give me a little grace here. You know I'm trying to give you the real. And you have guests. You have guests on almost every episode, to mm, my memory. Usually. They're all subject matter experts of some mm. sort and really important people. But at least a third of every episode is just you talking directly to listener. And, and I'll be honest, that's unusual for a lot of podcasts. I feel like we are at happy hour. <laughs> like we are friends. Like that's how it sounds. Your delivery is so intimate. What's behind the way that the podcast sounds and how it's put together? You know, I really appreciate the fact that you think it was a plan. (laughs) (laughs) I try to always paint a picture for someone who was not there. My Mm. first real assignment was to cover live concerts, Nally Cole in Oakland. And my editor there, I love all my editors, as you can say, not all of them, but the ones I'm mentioning. Lee Hildebrand said, you have to give to the people that weren't there the feeling of being at the show. So my thing Mm. is, so am I going to do that, talk about it in some kind of plain, basic way with no emotion? Oh, no. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to tell you what the velvet felt like, baby, on the seats. (laughs) Like, let's go. My The best work that I do has that in it, even if I'm not using the pronoun I. So I feel like on the show, if you ask me about Sade... And that song, When Am I Going to Make a Living? We have to talk about that. And what that song means to me, we have to talk about that. I was supposed to just be delivering that information in a monotone. So I could, <laughs> okay. I want to talk about that song because... One of my favorite episodes of Black Girl Songbook is the episode about Sade and Estelle. And and there's a point in the early part of the episode where you talk about how much Sade's ambition really bolstered your ambition. What? That? That got me up out of my bed. That got me up out of grimy situations. That song helped keep me on track toward my dreams of being some type of writer. I hadn't even started calling my dreams goals yet. Yet Sade was pushing me along with no judgment and all love. Why was it important to you that Sade be seen as an ambitious Black woman? Because she was and she remained so. She has created a life for herself that she can work whenever she wants to and not work whenever she wants to. That's something I think to which we all aspire. Me too. She came from literally nothing. Everyone thinks Black people out here singing for joy. Okay, no. When am I going to make a living? That rang off to me when I was, what, 20 years old or something when that came out? And you know, I don't come from money. At a certain point, you really have to ask yourself, my sister and I really running together back then, thick as thieves, both of us, We're asking ourselves, and me in particular, saying, how are we going to live in this world? How are we going to have the food and the rent and the shoes? And you see, I like to be fancy. And how are we going to get our nails done? (laughs) Like, how are we going to be able to save some money? How? 
And Sade was just like saying, y'all can do that. I'm doing it. I love her love songs. Pretty much all of them. But when am I going to live? When am I going to make a living? You talk about like I get emotional. That song, I don't think I would have left Oakland without that record. Hmm. And I had to. I love Oakland. Everybody that knows me knows I'm a walking Oakland, California (laughs) t-shirt. But... I don't know that I would have left Oakland and I needed to leave Oakland without that record. Sade left London, came to the United States, went global. I remain floored by her. You know, also like that turn of phrase, it doesn't just, you know, describe your feelings about that song. I love the the way that you framed that. Sade is a Black woman who has achieved success because she works when she wants to. Um, so often, I think that when people think about what's, what success is or what that looks like or what ambition looks like, it's they're over here, they're over there. Yep. <laughs> they got all these brand sponsorship deals. And those things are fine. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But like the idea of what ambition, like I love the idea that for a Black woman, ambition can look like giving yourself enough so that you can rest and just be yes. by yourself. And, and she doesn't even really talk about it. She's not, Shade's not even interested in giving us the secret. Like she's, <laughs> <laughs> she's not written. She hasn't written a book that is like, you too can if you just. She's like, I don't even have time for that. She's keeping that secret to herself. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite episodes of Black Girl Songbook is your episode about Angela Bofill, who is just an incredible songwriter, lyricist, singer, performer, who who just had so much popularity in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. I love her for this song called I Try, which she released back in 1979. And this is a song that you talk about at length um, and actually play in full in the episode of Black Girl Songbook. Unfortunately, she can no longer perform as she used to because she's had two strokes. But you made this episode that was literally a love letter to her. What was it like to be able to show your love in that way to an artist that you love so much? The dream, it was a dream come true. I have to give credit to, we have a booker on the show, Allison Turner. She does great work. She's persistent. Allison secured that meeting after so much persistence I think she felt my energy too because I was like Allison this is the one for me like this is the one she's one of my mother's favorite artists Angela Bofield mm-hmm. Records just got me through all of being a teenager and um, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about her records and I wanted to talk about her life but I also man when I was talking to her you know it's tough to come back from two strokes and it's not easy for her to speak. And I loved from her, and that's what made me so emotional on the show, is that she did not care that it was difficult for her to speak. She was going to speak. Were you singing around New York at that time? or Yes. Uh, first of all, I joined the chorus, All City, all city New York Chorus, mm-hmm. Best High School Voices mm-hmm. Audition. Yeah. Uh, first group uh, audition, soprano. <laughs> so 
She was yeah, happy to yeah. be talking about her work and her life. But then when she said that she doesn't remember her songs, hmm. songs that she wrote and recorded and sang live for decades because of the stroke, oh, no, I couldn't hold it together. Hmm. And then she said, but it was okay because a song that she does remember is Happy Birthday and she can sing it to her grandbabies. Listen to me, Brittany. Because I felt like every way that she actually was on the phone to me that day was every way, was everything that came through in her music when I needed it most. Mm. Like, she really is that kind of person. That what matters to her is that she can sing Happy Birthday to her grandkids. And I was mm. listening to her when I was 15 and 16, like... I needed oxygen from her. And then also for her to be so under-celebrated, mm. it bothers me. That's why I get emotional sometimes on songbook. I literally want to fight because the person that I'm talking to has done so much that is unknown and that everybody just takes for granted as just existing or having been done by someone else, less marginalized. Mm. Mm. And I I just literally can't stand it. And I think it's going to fuel the rest of my career. It's hard not to read this book or listen to your podcast or even talk to you right now and not feel like there's this dichotomy. You are the journalist, the professional, master of your craft, but also such a fan. There's so much love in the show. There's so much love in this book. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about this book specifically as an expression and the podcast as well, but as an expression of your love, what it feels like to be able to have these avenues to be able to express your love for this music. It's always been a dream come true for me to be writing about music, being an editor in the music world. It feels good. It's such a blessing to just really be able, and people say it all the time, but it's true, to work in what you love. I used to really believe that music could really change the entire world. That's the era that I grew up in. We didn't fake believe that. We thought We Are the World was a real thing and was going to change everything. I thought hip-hop was going to change everything. I didn't fake believe that. I thought the Jackson 5 were like the most important cultural thing in the world. I didn't fake believe that. And I'm trying to hold on to it as best I can. And I do it with the book. I try to share it with the show. And this is a crazy world we live in, man. Ooh. It's a crazy world. And um, I'm just trying to remind people who we are as black women and have a good time while doing so. Well, that is exactly, uh, from my view, what you've been doing all these years, and uh -huh. I appreciate it so much. For Colored Nerds was created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Eddings. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producer Alexis Williams and social producer Elise Ellis. Marcus Hom is our engineer, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love you all so much. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds. 
and never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.